Well, in a little less than nine days from now, uh, the world is going to push the pause button, so to speak, on their busy schedules. And they're going to celebrate what is perhaps the most widely known and promptly celebrated holiday around the world, known as Christmas. Businesses will close. Manufacturing plants, sawmills, factories will either run on skeleton crews or they'll shut down altogether. Highways and transportation systems, streets will grow quieter. Friends and families will gather together. Gifts will be exchanged. The sights and sounds of Christmas will be seen nearly everywhere. And yet, remarkably, many will not understand why they're celebrating Christmas. It's interesting when we look at the scriptures and we look back at history that the very first Christmas was not much different. It didn't even appear as a blip on the world's radar. The Son of God stepped out of eternity into time, clothing himself incarnate in the form of humanity of a helpless babe. The second person of the triune Godhead stepped down from his throne of glory and became one of us. God came to earth, and yet only a handful of people noticed. When man walked on the moon, why, the world sat up and took notice. But when God entered the world, a far greater event took place, hardly anyone noticed. It's interesting to me that there is a lot of confusion around the meaning of Christmas. One comedian by the name of Andy Barowitz says, Christmas is a baby shower that went totally overboard. <laughs> I read about one grandmother who took her four-year-old granddaughter to big church for the very first time. And the little girl sat quietly, taking in the entire service, every aspect of it, attentive and focused until the pastor prayed. And he said, Lord, we thank you for your presence. When the little girl heard those words, her eyes flew open and she whispered to her grandmother, Granny, we're going to get presents. <laughs> well, this morning I want to put the heart back into Christmas, so to speak. Christmas as God intended it. You see, at its core, Christmas is ultimately about the heart of God. One person said it this way, Christmas began in the heart of God. It is complete only when it reaches the heart of man. The very first Christmas was not about Christmas at all. It was about Christ. It was not about presence, but about his presence. It's not about Santa, but it was about the Savior. The late British renowned chemist A.F. Wells said it this way, Take Christ out of Christmas, and December becomes the bleakest and most colorless month of the year. Hmm. He's right. You see, Christmas is about Jesus Christ. He was born to come and take away the sins of the world, God incarnate. My prayer this morning as we reflect in God's word about what Christmas really is, that we will walk away from here today with the true understanding of what Christmas really is about and be refreshed and renewed in our own hearts and rejoice in our souls that God indeed sent a Savior for us. I want to read for you from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. 
It's a passage of scripture that talks about a group of men that all of us are familiar with. We call them the wise men, but it's interesting of all the characters in the New Testament that were around the nativity, there is less known about them than perhaps anyone in the entirety of those who were around Jesus' birth. Chapter 2, verse 1, Matthew says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And when he had sent them to Bethlehem, he said to them, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place Where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child and with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream, they returned uh, to re- not to return to Herod. The Magi left their own for their own country by another way. Fascinating passage of Scripture, because we learn about a group of men that really we know virtually nothing about, less than all the other characters around the cast of the Nativity. We know that they were powerful men. They were highly educated. They were very wealthy. We know them as the magi or the wise men. They were, uh, they were skilled in the knowledge of astrology and astronomy and natural sciences and so on. But really, nobody knows where they came from. Only they came from the east. Some people they think they came as far away as Persia or modern-day Iran, which would have been a minimum of about a six-month journey. And when you put that together, a six-month journey one way, it meant that they gave up an entire year of their lives in search of the Savior. Uh, Their leverage was so influential in the world they lived in, they were known as kingmakers. Now, tradition says there were three of them. Other traditions say there were as many as 12 of them. We don't know who they, how many there were or exactly who they were. But I think that's significant that Matthew is not telling us all those details that we would naturally ask, well, who were they? Where did they come from? How many were there? It is noteworthy for us to notice that Matthew says that's not important. 
what you need to know that is important to the heart of God is that these men, though they were known to be wise, the reason they were wise was because they sought God and they followed his star. It's interesting, in the Bible we find that God leads by a variety of ways, different stars, so to speak, to get people's attention, to follow him. For the Magi, he used a star. For Moses, he used a burning bush. For Jonah, he used a big fish. For Balaam, he used a donkey. For Mary, he used an angel. For Joseph, he used a dream. You see, God led in the Bible. And I'm convinced that God still leads today. In fact, we know that he leads today. How does he lead today? His primary way that he leads us today is through the written word of God and through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, through the witness of the word and the witness of the spirit. He often leads us through the wise counsel of other believers. Sometimes he leads us by hearing the story of faith of other people who are following God as well. But God led in the Bible, and God still leads today. And what I think is significant is that Matthew does not tell us who they were. Why? Because God is not so much concerned where you came from. He's more concerned about where you're going. God is not concerned about your heritage. He's concerned about your heart. He's not concerned about your degrees. He's concerned about your desires. What God wants more than anything else is your heart. And he wants you to know him no matter where you come from or who you are. When we look through scripture, we find that God rewards those who seek him. And so as I walked through this passage this last week, I, I began to think through what is it that they found, these wise men, as they came in search of Christ? What did they find? And I, I would suggest there are four gifts that as I look through this passage and walk through it, there are four gifts that I think they found. One is they found the gift of God's truth. And they found the gift of God's joy. Third, they found the gift of God's salvation. And fourth, the gift of God's assurance. Pretty plain and simple. But when you begin to unpack this passage, you find how profound finding God's truth really is. How life-changing it is to know God's joy and to know God's salvation and his assurance. So the first thing they find is God's truth. It says in verse 2 that when, when they came to Bethlehem, they began to ask. And they said, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, this is really important for us to understand what's going on inside this text. These were men highly renowned for their skills in astronomy, astrology, natural sciences. They were powerful men, dignity and pride. And yet, they were wise enough to recognize to follow God's star. Why? Because they were seeking truth. They were seeking God's truth. When we look in the pages of Scripture, we find that seeking God and His truth means that we must seek Him with, at all costs, with everything we have. I already mentioned that the wise men had left perhaps maybe six months away of travel to finally arrive in Jerusalem. That meant they gave up an entire year of their lives. They put their entire lives online in pursuit of the truth. They gave up their reputation. They gave up their time. They gave up their resources, all in pursuit of the truth. 
You see, when we're seeking truth and God wants us to seek him, we find in Scripture that God wants us to have an all-out pursuit of him. I want you to hold on to that idea for a moment as we begin to unpack this a little further. Because the reality is this, is that oftentimes we're half-hearted in our pursuit of truth, and we wonder why we never really find it. The wise men show us that they were not half-hearted. They gave their all in pursuit of the truth. But the real question I had as I walked through this passage was, how in the world did they know to follow a star? How did they know? Well, many believe that these wise men were connected to a long chain of Chaldean royal advisors. In other words, advisors from Babylon that had been greatly influenced by a young Jewish boy, a prophet by the name of Daniel, who had been brought to Babylonian exile some 600 years before. Daniel was highly influential in biblical prophecy. He understood it. He understood the purpose of the Messiah. And his deep knowledge of God's word, as well as his influential life, had an incredible ripple effect on many generations. So I suspect that the Magi were probably acquainted with the outline of prophecy from Daniel some 600 years before. And I wonder if Daniel didn't teach them what Moses learned all the way back in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. It says this, I see him, but not here and now. I perceive him, but in a far distant future, a star will rise from Jacob, a scepter will emerge from Israel. The Bible doesn't tell us all the things that the wise men knew, but they knew enough to follow God's leading, and they recognized this star as probably being prophecy that God was fulfilling. What is probably the most surprising to me as I read through this passage, and it should startle any one of us as we spend time really thinking through this passage, is that when The wise men come to Jerusalem. It's a natural place to go. That's where the king is at. That's the center of Israel. They suspect that's where they're going to find the king, but they don't. But what is interesting, what they do find there is they find a troubled king. It says in verse 3 that Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. What I find fascinating about this is that he's so troubled. He gathers together all the chief priests and the scribes, and he says, so where is the Messiah going to be born? What I find both startling and disturbing is that they quote, without a moment's hesitation, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But what's interesting, when they quote this verse, they only quote part of it. There are three parts to this verse. And the very last part of this verse tells us something very significant about who this Messiah is. The part that they leave out is this, his goings forth are from long ago. From the days of eternity, meaning this, they recognize that whoever this Messiah is, his days were from eternity, that he was not a normal born king. There was something supernatural about this king. Now we know it today and recognize this title from days of eternity and all the rest of scripture that this was, yes, an unusual king. Because this king was God incarnate, who exists from eternity past. He may have been born in Bethlehem, but he didn't come from Bethlehem. He came from eternity. So when they asked 
when they were asked, well, where, where is this, this Messiah going to be born? They, they answer without a moment's hesitation. Oh, no problem. Six miles from here in Bethlehem. Now, what I, fi- what I find that so disturbing is this. Here are the chief priests as well as the scribes, that is, the spiritual leaders of Jerusalem. They know, but they do nothing about it. They don't even lift their finger to find the Messiah, yet they know exactly where he's going to be born, and they know when he's going to be born, but they don't even lift a finger to find him. I find their attitude of indifference to be absolutely disturbing. Herod had one of cold jealousy, but they had one of cold apathy. Their long-awaited Savior, only six miles away, and yet they didn't even bother to seek him out. I find this interesting because what many of us don't know is according to history, there was a widespread expectation in the world at that time of a great king who would come from Israel. Suetonius, the Roman historian, said this, there had been spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at the time, at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Isn't that amazing? The world knew. In fact, others in history speak about the anticipation, the long-held anticipation that a Messiah, a Savior of the world was going to come. And so I find it very fascinating as these magi came to Jerusalem. And they began to ask around, so where is this king of the Jews that is born? Imagine this. Every time they ask somebody this question, so where is he, the king of the Jews? Where is he born? They get this response, I don't know. I don't know. Like a teenager. Ever ask a teenager a question? It's like, I don't know. I don't know. That's their vocabulary for three or four or five years. I don't know. (laughs) But they didn't know. They didn't know. I suspect that they knew far more than they let on. Verse 3 is the clue for us. It says, when Herod heard of the birth of the Messiah, he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. That word troubled there means that he was deeply agitated. Now, we already know about Herod. Herod was a man who was, whose temperament was virtually insane. He had the temperament about as stable as nitroglycerin and an ego as fragile as thin glass. In other words, Herod was the Kim Jong-un of North Korea today. He was the Xi Jinping of China. He was the Vladimir Putin. This was a guy that if you ticked him off, you might disappear and nobody will know where you went. He was known to be unstable. But here's what I want us to see. And this is important for us to take away. When you're seeking God's truth, both scripture and life experience confirm this. That oftentimes you're the only one pursuing it. It is oftentimes a lonely quest. And you find yourself like the Magi, outnumbered and alone. But what I notice about the Magi is they never gave up. Even though the religious leaders should have known should have put out the effort to find the Messiah. They didn't. You see, it's interesting to me that a lot of people say they want to know about who God is. They want to know him personally, but they don't take the time to really seek him. I find that fascinating because there's a passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, that says this. 
God is speaking. He says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all, with your whole heart. You'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with your whole heart. Today, there are many people, if you ask them, do you know God? They'll say, yeah, I know God. But you see, God is not merely interested in what you know about God. God wants people who are seeking him. And there's a world of difference between the two. He does not say, those who know me will find me and search for me with their whole heart, but rather those who seek me, they will find me. I think that is interesting. Do you know why? Because knowing God is not that difficult. You say, what are you saying? I'm simply echoing the truth of what Scripture teaches. The Bible teaches that every single human being that is ever born knows there is God. Romans chapter 1, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says that that which is known about God is evident within us, for he has made himself known. He goes on to say, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So as we look at the world today and we look within our hearts, we know there is a God so that they are without excuse. You see, God is far less concerned with what you know about him than what you're doing with what you know about him. God is looking for people who truly seek him, not who simply say they know him, but those who seek him with their whole heart. So what happens when we seek God with our whole heart? Well, one, according to this passage, we find God's truth. And we learn, just like the wise men, that God's truth is not some vague moral premise. But in fact, God's truth is not a premise at all. God's truth is a person. It's Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, Jesus is the very source and definition of what truth is. Let me say it this way. To deny absolute truth is to deny Jesus. To say that truth is my opinion that is equal to your opinion, and your view of truth is equal to my opinion of truth, is nonsense. Because the very source and definition of truth is Jesus Christ himself. So truth is not simply one opinion that is equal to another. Truth, in fact, is not a premise. It is the person of Jesus Christ. Psalm 51, verse 6 says this, that God desires truth in our inmost being. What that verse is saying, the rest of Scripture echoes, is that God created you with a God-shaped void, a truth-shaped hole inside of you, and nothing else will satisfy or fill that hole but only truth. For the religious leaders... They thought to fill that hole was religion. And I suspect that there may be some of you this morning thinking that to fill that hole, to fill that place of, of desire in my life for God is, is a matter of going to church, as a matter maybe of being baptized, as a matter of simply reading my Bible. But those are not the answers. The answer is knowing God personally. You see, Jesus didn't come to give us religion he came to give us a relationship, a relationship with truth incarnate. And so the first gift we find, the Magi find, is the gift of God's truth. 
And when they do, it leads to God's joy. That's what happens next in verse 10. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now, I can't help but wonder, and maybe it's just my imagination, but I like to get into the sandals of the text and walk in the dust of the day and imagine what was it they thought? What was it they felt? What did they see? And I wonder, as they did, what they must have thought when they saw this star coming over Mary and Joseph's house. I wonder if they thought, you've got to be kidding me. I came all this way just to come to a little town among thousands of little towns in Israel, to this little house. I came all this way, put all this effort into it. I wonder if they expected a ticker, talk parade, or a ticker tape parade. I wonder if they expected a five-star st- hotel. I wonder if they expected a palace. I wonder if they expected servants and royal treatment. But that is far from what they got when they came. See, we have to understand as we look at Scripture that Mary and Joseph were extremely poor. They were so poor, in fact, it says when Jesus was born and they came to give an offering, they could not afford a lamb, which is normally given. Instead, they gave a pair of turtle doves and two pigeons. Everything about Jesus' life in the very beginning was a contradiction of what you'd expect of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He lived in a poor city. He lived in a poor place. He had poor parents who had a poor reputation. And it seemed like a very strange beginning for the one who's going to save the world. But here's what I find. Despite the royal letdown, so to speak, it says that when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. In other words, Matthew is describing their relation in the strongest possible words. They were overwhelmed. I mean, these guys, these were kings, were doing cartwheels. Uh, Maybe not on the outside, but on the inside, they were doing cartwheels. They were jumping up and down for joy. You see, their joy they experienced was no mere earthly experience of joy. This was an experience of joy unlike they'd ever known before. And here's what I've discovered. We see it throughout the pages of Scripture, and I've seen it time and time again in people's lives, that when you come to know God and you come to know his truth, there is a joy that overflows in your life unlike anything you've ever experienced in this world. Some time ago, a close friend of mine and I had the opportunity to sit down with an elderly gentleman who many thought for years, this man will never come to Christ. This is one of those people that we would never imagine coming to Christ. I remember stepping into his living room and sitting down and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, sharing that Christ had come to die on the cross for him, that he had paid for all of his sins, past, present, and future, that Christ did for him what he could never do for himself, And that by receiving that gift of salvation that God was offering him, God would give him forgiveness. God would give him a new life. God would give him eternity in heaven with the Savior. When I shared the gospel with this man, I began to watch this man come alive. 
He sat on the edge of his chair, and he held on to every single word I shared. And the day he trusted Christ, in that moment, he cried with tears of joy, and he said again and again and again, this is the greatest news I've ever heard. This is the greatest news I've ever heard. Several weeks later, I was called to the hospital to his bedside. It was the last time I'd see him. As I came into the, the hospital room, it was filled with people. He called me over to his bedside. He said, John, come over here. Come over here. And he said, John, I want you to share with everybody in this room what you shared with me on that day. It is the greatest news I've ever heard. It is the greatest news I've ever heard. The joy that the Magi had, the joy that this man had, was a joy that only heaven can give. And the joy that we have when we come to know Christ is a joy that is only a joy that we can experience in God from his heaven and from his person. When you know God, you know a joy unlike you've ever known before. It is a joy that surpasses and that endures all the difficulties, the trials of life, it is a joy that sustains. It is a joy that keeps. It is a joy that is from heaven. The second gift they found was the gift of God's joy. Third, they found the gift of God's salvation. Verse 11 says, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Just pause for a moment and read that. Imagine these powerful and prideful and dignified and wealthy Men, as they come walking into the house and their eyes settle on baby Jesus in the arms of Mary, the very first thing they do, and the sense you get in the text, it's almost involuntary, involuntarily. It's as though they fall in unison to the ground and worship the Lord. That word there for fell is a great word. It literally means they fell in unison at one time. As they walked in the door, they crumpled to the ground in worship and adoration. I find that amazing. These men were great, of men of great pride and dignity and intellect, and yet they had sense enough that when they came in the very presence of the Son of God himself, face to face with God, they humbled themselves by bowing to him and worshiping him. And they gave him gifts that were only fitted for a king, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold pointed to Jesus' deity, or pardon me, to his royalty. Frankincense pointed to his deity. And myrrh pointed to his future sufferings he would have on the cross. But you see, it's from these wise men's humble worship that we get the timeless adage that wise men still seek him. Another thing I noticed as I walked through this passage is this. Notice that as Matthew walks through the announcement of the birth of the Messiah, there are three major people groups, and each one has a vastly different response to hearing the news of the Messiah. There's King Herod, and his first response is one of fear and jealousy and hatred. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And there are people today that you'll talk to them about Christ and they want nothing to do with him. And their first response is one of fear or of hatred. And they want nothing to do with him. 
It makes no sense at all to me. Here is the Savior of the world offering forgiveness, offering eternal life, offering his love, and yet they want nothing to do with him. They only want to give hatred. Makes no sense at all to me. And yet Herod depicts the way many people respond to Christ today. Now, Herod was the king of Jerusalem. He wasn't the rightful king. He actually came from Esau, which is Jacob's brother. He was not the rightful king. But had he been wise, had he been wise as a king, he would have listened to David's instruction found in Psalm 2, which said this, Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son, or he'll become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities. For his anger flares up in an instant, but what joy for those who take refuge in him. Wow, what a powerful prayer to pray for our leaders today, isn't it? He says in there that they'll be destroyed in a moment. If they reject the son, we know from Herod's own life that he was destroyed not long after this. He died a death and he is forgotten. The Bible says, in fact, in Psalm 49, that those who reject God, no matter how powerful, no matter how wealthy they are, the moment they reject God and they die, their memory will be forgotten, vanished. No matter what kind of memorials they put on earth to remember their name or their success or their achievements, the moment they die, they're forgotten. Wouldn't it be wise if our leaders today, both in America and the world around, were to take note of David's words? If they were truly wise as leaders, they would submit to God's royal son and worship him? Why is it? Why is it that the world's leaders today defy God and refuse to submit their lives to him? How different the world would be, wouldn't it? If we had leaders who love the Lord and serve the Lord, our world would be filled with the very peace that they speak in with hollow phrases. The second I see in this group is not Herod, but the religious leaders. And their response was one of complete indifference. And by the way, the word indifference is simply another word for hatred. They did not see their need for salvation because their trust was in their religious deeds. Yet the Bible says in Psalm 64, or Isaiah 64, 6, that all your righteous deeds are like filthy garments, David says in Psalm 53, verse 3, he says that there is no one who does good, not even one. You see, had the religious leaders been wise, they would have taken God's word serious. What I find amazing about this is this. They knew the Messiah was going to come. And you know that most of the world today knows that Christ is coming back? They know that. But they don't really care about it. There are few who are really looking forward to his return. Why? Because like the religious leaders, they respond with indifference to God's word. And they don't take God's word serious. You see, one of the greatest dangers I find for you and for me today is this. Is that we fail to take God's word seriously. 
And yet God teaches us in his word that it is his word. It will come true. It's absolute. It's trustworthy with our very eternity. And the greatest thing you can do today, the greatest mistake, is to not take God's word serious in your own life. The third response was that of the Magi. They were filled with great joy by seeing the Savior face to face. Can I ask you the question, which response do you have to Jesus? The Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Herod, Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un, every one of them, their knee will bow and their tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You see, Jesus' birth reminds us that the reason he came is because we need a Savior. Someone has said many years ago, if our greatest need had been for information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been for technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. And so God has sent us a Savior. Can I ask you this morning, what is your response to Jesus? Is it one of fear and hatred? Is it one of indifference? You could care less. It means nothing to you. Or is it like the wise men? The wise men are wise because they sought after God. And they found his gift of salvation. And that leads to the fourth gift. And I want you to notice the progression here. That when we seek God's truth, we find God's joy. When we find God's joy, we find God's salvation. When we find God's salvation, we find God's assurance. So verse 12 says this, Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Listen, I want you to really listen to what I'm about to share. There will always be a price, a cost, at following Christ. There is always a price to saying yes to God. For the wise men, it meant putting their lives on hold for at least a year. It meant putting their reputations on the line, their resources. It meant putting everything on the line for God. It meant risking their safety as well as risking their lives for the safety of Jesus. They knew well that Herod was a cold-blooded, tyrannical murderer. And yet they were willing to risk defying him in order to obey God. How willing are you to risk following when it means changing your plans, changing your dreams, Surrendering your aspirations. How willing are you to follow God when he says, follow me, no matter the cost? Even though it may increase stress in your life and increase risk, it may complicate your life in doing God's will. You see, saying yes to Jesus will always change the trajectory of your life. The wise men took a different route than they expected. And the same thing is true for you and for me. You will follow a different route the moment you surrender your life to Christ. But one thing is certain. 
And I can attest to you this well, that no matter where Christ leads you or how difficult life may be, God has given you this assurance. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You see, there's a world of difference between living this life on your own than living it in the presence of God who promises never to forsake you nor to leave you. And there is no greater assurance than that. Here's what I know about the path of following God. It's not just a good one. It's not just the best one. There is no better one. It is the most fulfilling one. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, it is impossible to please God without faith. And anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. I'm going to ask you this morning, are you sincerely seeking the God of truth? Have you truly given your life to Christ? This last week I read this story, a true story, about a young lady by the name of Anissa Ayala. In 1988, she was 16 years old, and she was diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia. The doctors said that if she did not have a bone marrow transplant, chemotherapy, and radiation, she would die. Neither her parents nor her younger brother were a match, and they could find no donor anywhere. Her parents were well into their 40s, and they decided to have another child that just maybe this new baby would be a match, a compatible donor. To their great delight, when Marissa Ayala, 14 months old, after she was born, they found that she was a compatible match. And Anissa, her sister, made a full recovery from leukemia. And both sisters are healthy today. You see, in a very real, real sense, Marissa saved her sister's life. She says, without me being a perfect match for my sister, she would not be here. Hmm. Jesus was born into the world for the very express purpose of saving us. And he is the one and only Savior who can save us when we put our trust in him. Christmas reminds us that we've come to celebrate Christ's birth. And without him, there is no salvation. There is no hope. There is no forgiveness. Christmas is not about Christmas. It's about Christ. It's not about presence. It's about his presence. It's not about a Santa Claus. It's about the Savior. I pray this morning as you've heard and reflected on the Magi's journey, I pray that you, like them, would follow their footsteps of wisdom and recognize that the adage is true. Wise men still seek him. Will you pray with me? This morning, with your heads bowed, maybe you came here this morning and like so much of the world, they're excited about Christmas, but they really don't know the meaning of Christmas. This morning, where you're at, with your head bowed, I want to remind you that Christmas is ultimately about the heart of God. And Christmas never 
becomes Christmas until the heart of God reaches your heart as well. This morning, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, the only person that was ever born that was meant to die, God incarnate, only God could forgive us, only God could save us. If you've never placed your trust in him personally, I'm asking you, will you seek him right now? Will you seek him in prayer? Will we say, Lord Jesus Christ, I'm seeking you with all my heart right now. And I put my trust in you. I recognize you were born Savior of the world, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I need your forgiveness. I need your salvation. And I'm asking, will you come into my life? Will you change my life that I would know your forgiveness and know your joy? and know truth. May I know your salvation and the assurance of what it means that you're with me and will never leave me nor forsake me. Lord, I give you my life. And maybe it'd be like the wise men. You're going to lead me in paths that I never dreamed I would take. And yet, Lord, I will follow because I believe that you're with me. And I trust you. So, Lord, I give you my life, and I ask, Lord, help me now to follow you with all my heart and learn what it means to be a believer, a follower of Christ. Show me what it means to have a relationship with you, the living God. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen.